The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. So we're excited to uh, baptize some kids this morning. We're excited to welcome new members this morning. Just thankful to God for growing our church community. What a gift. But as we do some of these things, it's just good occasionally to ask this question, uh, maybe even to think like an outsider who's here at church for the first time. Why do we do things like this? Has it ever struck you? I mean, you get used to it when you go every week, but has it ever struck you, if you can remember the first time you went to church, or maybe that's you today, has it ever struck you how weird church can be? It's really strange. Um, people can be way too friendly, and they're hugging each other. And for some of you, that's great. And for others, you're like, stay away from me, please, right? Or, or um, th then they start singing. Do you have any other groups of people where every time they get together, it's like a musical at first? Or, um, you know, they're, they're putting water on one another. Uh, they had people come up front and make promises. What are these people doing? What are we doing? Why are we here? That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. I hope everyone realizes that church can only ever make sense because of the person of Jesus. It only makes sense because of the person of Jesus. So I want to ponder that with you for a moment. Church only makes sense because of the person of Jesus. So here's one way I do not mean that. I'm not just talking about being religious or moral or getting everything or, or getting people together to worship something, right? People all over the world have been doing that all throughout history in scads of way with, without any reference to Jesus. You can do that without Jesus. It's easy to be religious or make yourself a better person without Jesus. And I, and I hope you know that's not why we're here. We're not here because we think we're good or that we think we can make ourselves better by our own efforts. It's not why we're here. Know that the church of Jesus Christ only makes sense because of the person of Jesus. So let me, let me mention now two ways I do, I do mean that. First is just from the perspective of church history. I think this is important to note. Especially the first generation of the church. That group makes no sense historically without the reality of Jesus rising from the dead and appearing to his followers. So we would have to ask questions like this. Why would a bunch of monotheistic Jews all of a sudden welcome Gentiles, discard circumcision, get rid of food laws, change the day they worship, believe Trinitarian ideas, and die for the claim that Jesus was crucified for sinners and rose from the dead? How would any of that happen if he didn't actually, literally, physically rise from the dead? Historians throughout the ages have been asking that question, and there's, there's really only one answer. The church only makes sense because of the real, literal, and true person of Jesus. He lived, he died, he rose. But then there's, there's one more way to see this. The church only makes sense because of Jesus. It's the way we want to focus on this morning. It's all about what Jesus came to accomplish and is still accomplishing today. It's very exciting. So before, before we do baptisms, before we welcome new members, we're going to take some time to continue in our series here through the Gospel of Mark. 
Just remember some basics. Mark was an associate of the apostle Peter. Peter was an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. Mark wrote this account of Jesus from Peter's reports just maybe 30 years after the life of Jesus. So what does that mean? It means he means you to take this as history, and it means it cannot be myth. It's impossible. These are eyewitness accounts of real history. And at the heart of Mark's book, we see this every week, are three questions. Number one, who is Jesus really? I hope you're asking that question. Who is he? Who is Jesus? Number two, what did he come to do? Why did he come? Number three, how should we respond to that reality? Well, in our passage today, we get another amazing look at all three of those things. And I think in God's providence, this passage provides a great foundation for what we're doing today, this morning as a church. So here's four things I wanna see with you from the passage. Number one, you get kind of like a summary display of Jesus Christ and all these chaotic responses to him. That's what we're gonna see in the passage. A summary of, of what Jesus has been doing and all these responses to him. That's the first thing. Second thing, we're gonna see what Jesus came to do and wanted to do in the midst of that. You see what he's after right here. Number three, then it's, I think it'll be plain, we'll see some ways we are called to respond to him. What does it mean to understand who he is, see what he came to do, and then respond? And then fourth, just real quickly, we'll see some of what that means for us right here this morning here at Fountain of Life, okay? So let's walk through those four things. Number one, the display of Christ and the chaotic responses to him. Mark begins his document very honestly, he's got no secrets. He tells us right away who Jesus is. Let's remember Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel. It's good news. The gospel of who? Jesus Christ. What does Christ mean? Promised divine king. The whole, the, the whole record of the scriptures. He's coming. Mark is saying he's here. And then look what else Mark says about Jesus. Gospel of Jesus Christ. The, does he say, the best teacher ever? Does he say, source of great advice? No, what does he say? The son of God. That's a majestic claim, is it not? Uh, if it's not true, leave Christianity. If it is true, our knees have to hit the floor. He's the son of God. So Mark tells us, then Mark begins to show us. And over the last few weeks together, we've seen picture after picture after picture of just the unparalleled authority of Jesus Christ as the son of God. We've seen it in his teaching. Jesus is the authority on truth. He speaks with his genuine, self-authenticating authority on all the important questions of life. He's teaching us about God and his kingdom, what it means to respond. Jesus is the authority on truth. Second, we've seen as referenced in verses 7 to 12, right? Jesus has authority over the created order. He's healing gratuitously. And what I mean by that is he will visit different villages and heal every single person who's sick in the entire village. And, and even if you have a hard time believing that, can you at least humor us and imagine that for a moment? The desperation of the ancient world, doctors kind of just cause more sickness with their treatments. You have literally no, no hope, no health care. And all of a sudden, there's someone who, with a touch, with a word, 
is making lame people walk. We saw that, right, in Mark 2? You, you, if you were here last week, we heard it, a man with a withered hand stretching it out like that with a word. Um, or or cr- most fundamentally of all, I think, for, for what's happening here, Jesus touches a leper. Remember the historical context on that? They're unclean. Uh, you, it's contagious. And he actually touches this man, and then he heals him completely. I mean, can you imagine what that would be like? He has authority over the created order. This is, no one's ever seen this before. No one's ever heard of this before. Third, he has authority over demons. That's strange for us. But can you, some of these stories we've heard, right? Can you imagine a church service? Jesus is preaching, and a demon starts screaming at him from inside of someone. Chaotic, terrifying. We, we remember the devil's real, deceives, tempts, corrupts, condemns. He has a certain authority over the broken state of things in this world on our own. We tend to buy his lie, buy his temptation, right? We're lost, we're powerless. And then Jesus comes and you see his authority, his spiritual authority as the demons panic. They scream out, they don't know what, they, what to do. And, and as they scream, he shuts them up with total authority and rescues people from their bondage. And this provides a really strange evidence, doesn't it, on who Jesus is? Because did you see what the demons say about him? They know exactly who he is. It's like as you read the book of Mark, the only people who know who Jesus are is we do, the reader, because he told us in verse one, and the demons, you're the son of God, we know you. No one else has figured it out yet. But you see pictures of his authority as the son of God. He, char- he charges them to shut up, you know, quit, quit speaking. I guess you could ask, well, why does he tell them to quit talking if... They're actually, they know who he is, and they're telling everyone. Well, I think it's because he wants to be in charge of the nature and timing of the message about himself. But the point here of this summary passage, I think, in 7 to 12, is Jesus has been displayed. We've seen picture after picture after picture that he really is the Christ, the Son of God. So then we ask that question, you know, is that true? Ask yourself that question. Do you believe that's true? Are you convinced by the evidence of this first century document, what these people saw? If it is true, how should you respond? What would it mean for your life if you had intellectual integrity, moral integrity, if Jesus was God's promised king, the very eternal son of God? We start to see some of the responses in this story. And they're chaotic. The crowds are, I don't know if this is a verb, mobbing. Is that a verb? Can you do that? They're becoming a mob. You know, maybe you went to Sunday school when you were little. Did you ever see pictures of Jesus' ministry? He's like on a perfectly manicured lawn, right? And his hair is just like the way you, you can't quite get it to be, but you always wanted it to be. And uh, there's little sheep or something frolicking. And uh, classical music is playing and maybe a children's choir, you know? And it's all holy Jesus, meek and mild. That had nothing to do 
with the first century reality. Did you see this verse? Because Jesus had healed a leper by touching him, because he had just healed the sick in city after city, verse 9, you know, in context, he's, he's pulling his disciples away for some rest because things are just nuts. They're intense. He's pulling them away from, for rest, and the crowds find him, and they mob at him. He told his disciples to have a vote ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Can you imagine you're having a meeting, you're going you're gonna to give a speech, and 5,000 sick people start to try to touch you? That's what it was like for Jesus. So he's got to make, make a little boat in the lake so he, can, so he can breathe, so he can do what he wants to do, which is to teach. But what are we supposed to think about these crowds? That's a question throughout Mark. What are, what are you supposed to think? Crowds love to follow Jesus, right? They, they come and listen to him. But what, what are they really about? And you know what you see as you read through this book? Crowds can be curious or furious, but they're not committed a lot of times they're an obstacle to getting to Jesus. They're entertained by Jesus, right? You got demons yelling, you got miracles happening, Jesus, nobody teaches like him, let's go see, this is an incredible show. They're entertained by Jesus, but they're not committed to Jesus. They're more fickle than faithful. They want to benefit from Jesus, but they're not committed to Jesus. They're not disciples. So one question we have to ask ourselves is, Am I a member of the crowd? Am I just looking in? Do I really want Jesus to just help my life, but I'm not interested in who he is? Would that be a descriptor of the way you're responding to Jesus? There's another response to Jesus. We saw it back in chapter 3, verse 6. And it defies our minds, really. These people... The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they saw Jesus do an incredible miracle. And so again, if you can just imagine that, if you, if you saw him literally do an incredible miracle right in front of you, what would your response be? I mean, some people say, if I just saw a miracle, I'd believe, right? What would your response be? Look at, look at the response of the religious leaders. They saw a miracle, Mark 3, 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. It's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? Wait, why, why would you want to kill someone who's healing the sick? Well, they hated the idea of needing Jesus. They, ha- they hated the idea of submitting to Jesus as their Lord. These people love to be their own authority and establish their own standards, and they love to believe that they were good and righteous before God on their own. They don't need Jesus to save them. And so when right in front of them, Jesus says, you do, I'm the Lord, I'm the king, and does a miracle to prove it, boy, it's just... It's, it's, like a, it's like a submission in martial arts or something when he's got, he's got a choke on you, right? You, it, it's ch- the integrity of the idea 
that Jesus is who he says he is, you're, you're brought to this, this moment where you can't stay neutral about Jesus. If he's, if he's just a good teacher, right, you can be neutral. What do you think about Jesus? Hey, I like Jesus. He says good stuff. But if he's just a good teacher, I can keep him over there, and I'm still kind of in charge of my life. But if he's really the eternal son of God, then, then you're, you're brought to this fork in the road, right, where you either trust him and love him and worship him and live for him, or you deny him completely. You reject him. And that's what these religious leaders are doing. So you've got this crowd, they're curious, they're not committed. You got these religious leaders, they hate him. In the midst of this display of who Jesus is and all these responses, now we see what Jesus came to do. So look at verses 13 to 19. Jesus calls his apostles. If you've ever tried to read through the Bible or you've read through Mark, and maybe if you're like me, you, you tend to just kind of skip over this. You're like, oh, he called him. Okay, moving you know, names. All right, let, let's keep going. And uh, if we're tempted to do that, hold on. There's, there's incredible stuff in here. Look at what Jesus is doing. Verse 13, what does he do? He went up on the mountain. Why does Mark mention that? Well, if you've, if you've read your Bible, what tends to happen on mountains? God comes. In fact, I think you're supposed to think of Moses on the mountain bringing Israel to meet with God. Except now, instead of Moses bringing the people of Israel to meet with God, Jesus is bringing the people to meet with him. He is the one they're coming to meet with. He, it's another just kind of layer of, 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 Jesus, of Mark showing us he's the son of God. Not only that, uh, how many disciples did he call? Did you notice? I think everybody probably knows this one. How many? 12. Why 12? Why 12? Is it because there was only 12 people qualified? None of these people are qualified. Why 12? Well, there were 12 tribes of Israel. And so for Jesus to pick 12 disciples, that's actually quite the statement. You know, it's not as savage, but are you familiar with how Jesus goes to the temple and we call it, he cleanses the temple? That's a nice way to say he kind of overturns the temple. Because he's bringing judgment on like the religious system of the time. This is the same thing. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? The people who follow me, those are the true people of God. The people who trust me, live for me, obey me, those are the true people of God. So it's judgment on the religious system of, of being good on your own. It's judgment on that hypocritical system of Israel at the time. But it's also, it's the beginning of a new creation. So verse 14, it says, Jesus appointed 12 the, trans, the translation could be more like he made 12 apostles. It, it, it is a, it's a reminder of Genesis 1 where God creates the world by his word. Jesus creates these people 
into apostles. It's the idea of a new creation. There's a new people saved by God to know God, to love him. That's what Jesus is doing. And did you see the core thing about them? He appointed them, verse 14, so they might be with him. So that they might be with him. Did you know this is the heartbeat of Christianity? Did you know that if you're a Christian, this is why Jesus saved you? It'll it'll melt you if you really taste this. You know what Jesus wants for you? He wants you to be with him. Did you see that the first thing wasn't he wanted them to do stuff for him? Did you see the first thing wasn't he wanted them to fix themselves up and then he might pay attention to them? What's the heartbeat of Christianity? That he might be with you, that you might be with him. A relational knowledge, love, and trust in, do you see this? Do you you see the glory of this? That the son of God would want you to know him, that he would know you, that you could be together. It's incredible. So he brings them in, disciples, makes them apostles. You ever get confused by those two terms? Sometimes I get this question, what's the difference between an apostle and a disciple? Well, disciple just means to follow. So in that day and age, it was a serious commitment where you would be with someone learn from them, follow them, uh, kind of ingest their teaching and obey their teaching. Uh, So in a way, all Christians are disciples, right? We want to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We want to follow him. But this 12, they're different because they're made apostles. Apostle means a sent one with authority. So the reason we're preaching from Mark today and not my opinions, because I'm not an apostle, (laughs) Mark was a close friend of Peter, the apostle. So they had authority. They wrote the Bible. And so you see already Jesus, what's he doing right here? In the chaos, he's being displayed for his authority, the chaos of all these responses. Jesus right here is creating his church. He started this new people that will be defined by being with him, knowing him, loving him. So look at Ephesians 2, 19. Paul writes this to anyone who believes. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are what? Fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Do you see what happens to you when you become a Christian? You're brought into a new kingdom, a new family. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So this is what happens as we preach and teach what the apostles gave us. God builds his church. He brings people to himself. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Who's the cornerstone? Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. We exist for him. We don't make sense without him. We love him, verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Church, do you remember that? Who are we? It's it's not the building, right? We love this building. We're thankful for it. 
We, most of the time, we love the building. But it's not the, it's not the building that God indwells. Who? What is it? Who is it? It's us. We together, trusting the teaching of the apostles about Jesus Christ, we become the temple of the living God. One of, one of 10 million out there, but a local version. God is here with us through Jesus Christ. You see, we only make sense because of Jesus. He's calling his church. Notice some things about how this worked. Chapter 3, 13. And he called to him. Did you see how they're described? The text says, he called to him those whom he desired. Did any of you find that interesting? It, he didn't say he called to them the most skillful. If you keep reading the book, these, that's not these disciples. Uh, he, it didn't say he called to him those who were most theologically acute. No. He called to, he, it didn't say he called to them those who were the most uh, morally excellent, handsome, gifted, educated, skillful. No. And you know, Jesus is totally unique in how this worked. Normal rabbis of this time, I guess you could say they were kind of like universities in the sense that if you were a student, you got to pick your rabbi. You'd say, oh, I like, I like this one, or I like that one. And then maybe you'd apply, sort of, and you'd be accepted. But, but you were the fundamental chooser. Do you see how Jesus totally flips this? He chose who his disciples would be. And what was the basis of that choice? His own desire. The authority, the grace of Jesus saying, you belong to me. Jesus flips it. He chooses. And the text shows us when he chooses you like this, what are you going to do? You're going to come. You're going to come. It's an irresistible call. And if you're a Christian, don't you know this is true? Especially if you became a Christian later in life. Do you remember hearing kind of the general call of the gospel? Maybe you went to church, somebody told you about Jesus. And for a while, you're like, not interested, not important, don't care. And then, and then at some point, something happened. What was it? Where all of a sudden you said, I need Jesus. Uh, my sin is real. I, I need a savior. My, my lostness is true. I need a king. I want to be right with God. I need Jesus. And you put your faith in him. What happened to you? He called you. He said, come on, be mine. And you put your faith in him. And you came. And just a few comments about the nature of this group. It really is a motley crew that Jesus knows and loves personally, which is a great picture of the church. If we look around at who's here and all our different strengths and weaknesses and idiosyncrasies and talents, this group would never come together like it does without Jesus. Isn't that true? Same thing with his first disciples. They were fishermen, blue-collar workers, not part of the religious system at all. But even he even called people across political spectrums. Can you believe that? Can everybody say, whoa, or, you know? 
You have Simon the Zealot, hard right. You got Matthew the ex-tax collector, hard left. And now what are they? They have a new allegiance. They belong to Jesus. Or you got people with character problems. Peter's boisterous, unstable. You know, I think it's kind of a joke that Peter, that, uh, so, so Peter's given name is Simon. And Peter, that's probably a nickname Jesus gives him. And you know what it means? The rock. I mean, imagine, imagine giving a nickname to your flakiest friend who's unhinged every once in a while and you call him the rock. Kind of a joke, right? And yet what happens to Peter over time? He actually becomes a trustworthy pillar in the church. Or he calls James and John. And do you see their nickname? Sons of Thunder. That's another slightly insulting joke of a nickname. It'd be like calling them your hotheads. I mean, once they go through a town and uh, the town rejected Jesus and they actually say, hey, should we call down fire on them? You know, light them up. And Jesus is, I'm paraphrasing, Jesus is like, no, no, they're hotheads. And yet what happens to them? Read, read John the Apostle later. Will you ever see a more loving, gentle, patient leader than the Apostle John? Do, do you see what's happening? These people are so undeserving. There was nothing in them that qualified them to belong to Jesus. In fact, as we read just this gospel, they're slow to understand who Jesus is and what he's doing. They don't, they don't get it. They are, Jesus will predict his death for sins, and then they will argue about which one of them is the greatest. They're pathetic. They're selfish. In his moment of need, they will flee. They're sinners. How does that, how does that help you? Because they're just like us. They're just like me. And the issue then, as Jesus calls them to himself, is not what they can do for him. It's what he will make of them. He's going to make something new. He's growing his church. Do you see who Jesus is? He's the Christ, the promised king. He's the eternal son of God. And here we got an angle on what he came to do. You know what he came to do? He came to grow his people so that they might be with him. Not based on their own deserving, but based on his goodness and his kindness. And the question is, is that you? Is that you? You're invited. So in the midst of all these chaotic responses of Jesus, Jesus' response is to create his church. But there does seem to be a problem. Do you see there at the end, verse 19, it's kind of ominous. Who does Jesus pick as one of his apostles? Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. What are we to think of that? Is this a, ooh, whoops, yeah. That, that must have been a shocker. Later on, is that what it is? Is this a mistake, a surprise? No, the, it's not a surprise at all. Because Jesus, this reminds us, Jesus came to die for his church. 
And that's how he brings us to himself. Came to die for us. Look at Mark 10, This is what Jesus said. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. If you take those words seriously, isn't it kind of staggering? That Jesus would know this is going to happen when he goes into the city. And what does he do? He still goes. How many of you, any of those things would be a reason to never go to that city? (laughs) This is what they're going to do. I'm not going there. Jesus says, this is what they're going to do, and I'm going there. I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise. Why? He tells you, verse 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. These people that he's called to himself, he's going to serve them. You, whom he's called to himself, he's going to serve you. And how does he serve you? He gives his life as a ransom for you. This is how Jesus saves his church and brings them to himself. We need to be righteous before God. On our own, we're not. Do you know that about yourself? You've not loved God with all your heart, all, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You've not loved your neighbor as yourself. You haven't kept your own standard before him, right? We're going to stand before him. On our own, we're guilty. What are we going to do? There's one hope. Jesus lived a perfect life. Always loving his father, always keeping the commands, always loving his neighbor. He's righteous. And then he went to the cross. Why? As a substitute for us. On that cross, he took the judgment I deserve for my sins, past, present, and future. And if you put your trust in him, it's true for you. Every one of your sins paid for so that through faith in him, you could be totally washed clean, totally forgiven. And he rose from the dead so that through faith in him, he accomplishes our very adoption as children of God brought into his family. This is how Jesus saves his church. You'd have to admit, wouldn't you, that if this is true, you've never seen love like this. You've just never seen love like this. I mean, for me that I've been a hypocrite, I've been selfish, I'm a sinner, I have regrets, and that Jesus would want to be with me and for me to be with him, and that he would live and die and rise so that I could be forgiven and made righteous before the Father and brought to him and be part of his church. Isn't that the greatest thing that could ever happen to you? That you would have Jesus as yours forever, and even death now is just a doorway, and you go to be with him, and when he returns, you rise from the dead, and you're with him and his people in a renewed world forever. I mean, if you have that, don't you have everything? And you're invited to it. And so we see the display of Jesus, the responses to him, what he came to do. He came to create 
and save his church. How do we respond? How do we respond? In a way, it's very simple. Jesus says, repent and believe. It just means turn from, turn to. You turn from, away from your own autonomy, your own independence, your own rebellion. You turn away from it, and you turn to Jesus, and you say, forgive me. You say, save me. You say, make me your own. I want to be yours. Repent and believe, and the promise is, as you do, he embraces you. And then you realize it wasn't ultimately you choosing him first. No, he's been after you. He's been drawing you. I wonder if some of you are experiencing that this morning. And again, it's, he doesn't bring you to himself because it's about what you can do for him. No, it's about, he, it's about what he can make of you. A new creation. So hear his call, hear his call and come and then be with him. Seek him, love him, know him. That's the big picture. Respond by coming. But as you do, you see, he'll make you part of his church. He'll make you part of his church. He makes us a new creation. See, Christians are going to have a different response than that of the religious leaders. Instead of them hating Jesus' authority, we're going to have a humble heart towards him and say, I need you, right? Save me. We're going to have a different response than even the demons. Didn't, in a way, they have their doctrine right? They knew who he was. But they don't love him. So for us, we want to know who he is and love him. Not only that, we're going to have a different response than that of the crowd. Jesus gives us many blessings, but we don't come to him just to make our lives easier. We want to follow him no matter what. We want to be committed, right? We want to be disciples. So just like the apostles, we want to then be sent by him. We're not apostles, but in the same way, we're sent by him. We want to live for his glory in the world, we, in our families, our relationships, our work, our service, our mouths telling others. We want to respond to be part of Jesus' church. So all of that brings us now, this fourth point, what does it mean for this morning? Well, everything we want to do is because of who Jesus is and what he's done. So we're going to... Uh, bring up new members. And members are saying, because of Jesus, I'm committing to be part of this local church. I've, we have unity on what we believe about Jesus and how we want to love Jesus and how we live for him. That's what these people are doing. And, and we're so thankful to welcome them into our community. And then also, we're going to baptize. What's baptism? Well, baptism is that initiatory sign Jesus gave to his church that marks us as belonging to him. And it's deeply symbolic. What do you think the water represents? The water is that idea of, of both death, because as we come to Christ in faith, we're united to Jesus in his death. Our old life is gone. And it's also that symbol of washing. Through Jesus, we get washed, washed clean from all our sin. And then as we dry off, it's that symbol of resurrection. Just as Jesus rose, so, so we rise to new life. We'll rise again when he comes. And so we have a new life of knowing him, following him. And as we do this, we remember it's a community event. So as we see these baptisms, each one of us who's a Christian, we should remember the true baptism, right? It's, it's not water. When I put water on people, does that save anybody? 
can I just get a hose and spray you all down and be like, they all converted, you know? No, it doesn't save anybody. It's a, it's a sign and a seal of the inward reality. The true baptism is what happens in the heart, a, a heart that comes to Jesus in faith. And in Fountain of Life, we believe that the biblical precedence for this sign of the covenant is it's for the children of believers. Just in the storyline of the Bible, circumcision was a sign of Abraham's justification by grace through faith. Even though it was by, his, by grace through his faith, it was given to his children in the new covenant that's replaced with baptism. So that means that by grace, the children of believing members of this church, they start in the covenant family. They're a part of the church. So are we saying, I just want to make this really clear, are we saying that when we baptize somebody, that saves them? No, not, not at all. And for these kids, um, no, we're, we're hoping and praying that God's covenant promise to his, his promises to his people will come true in these children as, as we, the families, the church, as we covenant to raise them to know and love and trust Jesus Christ. But by God's grace, we raise them as members of the community. We are teaching them to love and follow Jesus while we're feeding them their baby food and teaching them how to read and write and count. They're in the family. And so they receive the mark of the family. And Lord willing, as they grow, we'll see the sign that Jesus has called them as we see their own repentance and faith. To wrap it up, what are we doing this morning? Well, we're doing a lot of things, but here's the big point. We only make sense because of the person of Jesus. I hope you see that. Who is he? He's the promised king. He's the eternal son of God. What did he come to do? He came to gather his church. He lived and died and rose for us, and he calls us to himself. How do we respond? We repent and believe and belong in his church. And that's what we're celebrating this morning, that here in our little version of the church, Jesus is still doing what he came to do. He's building up his church. One aspect of that, new members. Another aspect of that, covenant kiddos in our community. But isn't it great? Isn't it great that Jesus is still working? Today, here, all over the world, he's still doing the same thing, bringing people to himself. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your goodness in sending us Jesus Christ and what he has done to bring us to himself. And I pray for anyone here that doesn't know or trust Christ, that you would introduce yourself to them, that you would show them who you are, what you've done, and that they would hear you, Lord Jesus, calling their name. And they would respond in repentance and faith, and they would rejoice that they're now part of your family. Lord, we also thank you just for new members and these new kids that are part of our covenant family. And we pray, God, your great blessing and encouragement on them as we celebrate the sign that you've given us, how we remember our unification with you, that we belong to you, that we are yours forever. So bless us, Lord, as we continue our worship in these ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. 
For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.